morning is taken from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, and could be found on page 1092 of the Pew Bibles. Acts chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented themselves to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Um, thank you. It is a real privilege to be here. Um, and although I've not, not been to Christchurch before, I do recognise a number of faces. Uh, Lynette and I were at the Kiku Events Week uh, last year, and um, it's just nice to be in Cambridge again, a lovely city. And um, one of the things I didn't mention just now about how to keep fresh in ministry is really spending lots of time in God's Word, and that's what we're going to be doing for the next uh, 20 minutes. And uh, uh, the most incredibly powerful passage, which is a delight to speak from. So do keep your Bibles open at Acts chapter 1. So uh, Lynette and I have just celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary, uh, just before Christmas. Uh, and we met actually in the first week of term in the first year of our time at Liverpool University. And um, uh, we met in the CU, and we were one of those couples, you know what I mean? Uh, those couples in the Christian Union who are always together, and um, we all came as a pair, always Peter and Annette, uh, for three years, and then we got married uh, after we graduated, and um, pretty much what my daughter did as well. And um, during that time, we really got to know each other, 
Um, we got married at the age of, I was 23, Lynette was 22, and you may think that's quite young, but we, we really did spend a lot of time uh, getting to know each other. We both come from different cultures, uh, and that was mixed race marriages were not quite so common in those days. Lynette's parents invited me to come to Singapore for the whole summer, which is great if you're going to see your girlfriend's parents for dinner, that's one thing. This was 11 weeks on the other side of the world, which is the kind of thing that could go really well or really, really badly. Actually, it was great, and I really enjoyed it. We went through good times together. We went through hard times together. Uh, Lynette actually stayed up until 5 o'clock in the morning typing up my final year thesis, so I decided that I had to marry her after that. Um, but after three years of dating and getting to know each other, we stood at the front of the church on our wedding day in 1993, and actually the reality was the adventure had only just begun. And if you look in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, Luke writes, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And then in his second volume, Acts Chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. But notice he doesn't say, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught, past tense. Incredibly, he says, I wrote about, uh, began to, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. So in Luke's mind, his gospel, all 24 chapters of it, was just the beginning of the adventure. And to the disciples who had been with Jesus for three years, and they had seen his ministry, been involved in, in his ministry, his miracles, his teaching, his death and resurrection, all that was just the start. It was just the beginning of the adventure. And these first 11 verses in the book of Acts describe kind of the time in between these two sections of the adventure of the impact of Jesus on the world. And these 40 days are between the resurrection uh, and his ascension into heaven while he gives instructions for the next stage in the adventure. And those instructions given then to the disciples really are instructions given to us uh, as we participate in his mission to the world. And I've got some headings. I'm not really looking at the screen. Here we go. Yes. Um, convinced, corrected, empowered, commissioned, and reassured. And very briefly, we're going to see how we can be convinced, corrected, empowered, commissioned, and reassured. So first of all, they needed to be convinced. And this is verse 3. After his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, I don't know about you, but so often it's easy to slip into thinking that the, the resurrection appearances all happened on Easter Sunday. Uh, right, lads, we've seen him, touched him, had breakfast, let's go tell the world. But it wasn't like that. Jesus appeared to them repeatedly over a period of weeks and gave them cast-iron proof you see, they didn't think that Jesus had risen from the dead. They didn't just merely believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. They knew it. They were absolutely certain. 
And it was this certainty that drove the early disciples out with a passion to tell the world that this Jesus had risen bodily from the dead. And although we have been, we are removed by 2,000 years from that point in history, we must somehow grasp the same certainty that they had, the same urgency to proclaim to the world that Jesus has risen from the dead. But let me ask the question, how do we know that Jesus is alive? How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us so? Yes, certainly. But also because we have experienced the risen Christ in our lives. He has changed our lives radically. I remember a student in Oxford saying to me, not very politely, he said, you do know, Peter, that you're kidding yourself. There's no evidence for what you believe. I said, no evidence? I said, Mark, if, if I decided not to believe now, after all I've seen of my life changing, of countless lives changing from different cultures around the world, if I decided to not believe now, that's when I would be kidding myself. You know, as I look back over 23 years of working with international students from so many different cultures, seeing the impact of the gospel in their lives, completely transforming them, setting them free, you know, we are witnesses to his resurrection. And the truth of the resurrection that we see in scripture is borne out in our experience. You know, the apostle Peter writes to people like us who, unlike him, have not seen Jesus bodily risen from the dead yet. But he writes to us and says that we don't have the lesser. We, we still have an experience of Jesus. In 1 Peter 1 verse 8, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. I, I, Never forget when a Romanian student came to me after a, a talk and she looked around the room at the Christian, the young Christian people and, and she said, I see your joy. I see your joy. You know, sometimes I hear Christians say, well, of course, we can't prove that God is real, that Jesus is real, but we can't prove that he isn't either. And I think, really? <laughs> is that the best we can do? Surely we know, surely we have had the experience that we know Jesus has risen from the dead. Either Jesus is changing lives or he isn't. Can we say like Paul said in Romans 1 verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And I wonder if we have, we maybe need to have a look at our lives a little bit and go, when people look at me, do they see that? Do I need to actually invest more in my relationship with God so that immediacy of the, re the reality of the power of Jesus in my life is a little bit more evident in my faith, in what I do, and in my bearing? Secondly, they needed to be corrected. And this is verses um, 6 to 8. Um, I like this next slide. And maybe you can't see it. I've had my hips replaced, uh, so I like that, that mug. We should get it sometime. But um, it says in verse 6, Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
He said to them, it is not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So the question was, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It was so much the wrong question to ask. Firstly, because we're not supposed to try to guess or calculate the return of Christ. People have tried that, and it's only brought dishonor to to the Lord. But it was the wrong question to ask also, because they were still just thinking about Israel. It's quite incredible to think, really, after all that Jesus had taught them about all that he had said about the kingdom of God, they were still just thinking about their country and being free from the Romans. And yet, it's very understandable, really, that if you are a small, persecuted people, it's natural to think that you are the ones that need rescuing. But here's the thing, and I hope that if you get nothing else from this morning, I want us to hear this. That the disciples were not the ones that needed rescuing. They were the ones who had been rescued. They were the ones being given the message of rescue for the nations. And we need to hear that today. We are the ones who have met the risen Christ. We are the ones who have been changed by his power. We are the ones who have been commissioned to take his message to the world. And our numbers may be small, but we have been entrusted. We're not the ones who need rescuing. We are the rescuers by the grace of God. Thirdly, they needed to be empowered. And um, let's look again at verse 4. He says, On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water. In a few days, he'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. How did that tiny group of um, pressured believers become those with the message of rescue to the nations? Well, Pentecost. How do we become people who are less worried about being a minority in an ever-increasing pressured environment to being bold bearers of the Great Commission? Pentecost. And I have no theological agenda here, and I've worked right across the evangelical spectrum. And But what I tend to find is, no matter what kind of brand of Christianity we come from, in the evangelical world. The tendency is to always think backwards when we receive the Holy Spirit. But the difference between the disciples and us is that we no longer need to wait for the gift. We have the gift. But there is a sense in the New Testament where we are supposed to actively seek to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, I don't know about you, but I need the Holy Spirit every day. And so what difference would it make if each of us intentionally, daily said, Lord, I need your spirit to empower me, to live for you, to be bold in my witness today. And no matter how I feel, whether I feel nothing else, to get up and get on with my day and take it on faith that the promise of God is true. They were commissioned, verse 8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this is something I'm going to say more of this evening. Um, But um, we tend to think of this as a kind of geographical journey. The map at the back of our Bible showed Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then 
basically everywhere else. But much more so in the book of Acts, this is not so much a, a, a geographical journey, it's a cultural journey from um, Aramaic-speaking uh, Hebrew culture in Jerusalem, Judea, the mixed culture of the Samaritans in chapter 8, and then into true Gentile territory. And each stage that the gospel took required people of imagination and vision to take the gospel across these critical cultural barriers. You know, it was a privilege to train for ministry in a college where I was the only Western student, and they would say, uh, apply this essay on Jeremiah to your own Asian perspective. And I had to pretend to be someone different this time. Um, but just to see the power of the gospel um, in each different culture, because Jesus is the answer to the longing and searching and groping after truth for every culture from the beginning of time. As one student from Japan said to me, I do pray to God, I just don't know who he is. And that is the cry of the world. I do pray to God, I do believe in God, I do know there's something there, but I have no idea who or what that is. But because of Jesus, we do. And finally, they were reassured. Verses 9 to 11. Now, at the end of Luke's gospel, we have uh, where Jesus has risen from the dead and uh, two women come and uh, they see an empty tomb. We find in Luke 24, verses 4 to 5, that they came across two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning. And they told the women that they were looking in the wrong place. Why do you look for the living among the dead? And then here in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, the disciples are told again by two men dressed in white, again angels, that they're looking in the wrong place. Why do you stand here staring into the sky? Now to the women at the tomb, the angels' uh, reassurance, their encouragement was, he is not here, he is risen. And their encouragement to the disciples in Acts was... This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. They'd lost Jesus once. They'd stood at his crucifixion thinking they'd lost him forever. But they got him back. And now they were staring into the sky, wondering if they were losing him again. But Jesus is coming again. And it must have been, must have felt very difficult for them that they just got used to him being back again. But Jesus was promising them a relationship with him through his spirit that was going to be altogether different and more powerful than even him being there in his unglorified flesh. But the angels also speak of a time when he is going to return. And so we can't afford to be kind of wistfully looking into the distance. We've got a job to do. And that's where I really want to end our time here, because we do have a task to do. Now, time is against us to give a detailed application, but I want us to ask, from what I've just said so far, what is the thing that can really encourage you this morning? First of all, are you convinced, are you really convinced 
that Jesus is risen from the dead. Not just intellectually, not just because the Bible tells us so, that is our bedrock, but in terms of have I experienced that change, that being born again in my life? Can people see the difference that Jesus is making in me? Do I actually need to invest more time to draw closer to him so that risen, the resurrection of Jesus is more evident? Are we still thinking of ourselves as the survivors, an increasingly beleaguered minority? Or do we see ourselves actually with the people who don't need rescuing? We are the ones who have been rescued, but we are the ones with the message of rescue for the nations. Is the Holy Spirit a footnote in our creed, or are we actively, intentionally asking to be increasingly filled with his power and presence? Now, you may have noticed I haven't said anything about missionaries or mission societies or the needs of the 1040 window or the Islamic world. Am I being remiss on a mission Sunday? But really what I want to focus on as we finish is two responses we can make to the Great Commission. One is to say, well, kind of rather you than me. <laughs> you know, it's great for, for you to do that. That's great. There are some people who do that and we pray for them and we give to them and we support them, we do what we can, but we don't, I can't. But the other way is to say, I am so filled with joy. I am so convinced that Jesus is alive. I, I experience the reality of that so much in my life that I am so overwhelmed by the love of Jesus because I can't see him, I can't touch him, but I love him and I believe in him and I need to let the world know this. And even if I can't go, I'm going to make jolly sure that I back up everyone who can. A friend of mine is going to visit his cousin in Australia for her wedding. And he and his wife can't afford that kind of trip, but they're going because... His grandparents wanted to be there for their granddaughter's wedding in Australia, but they're too old now. They can't make that trip. So they are paying for all the grandchildren and their spouses to go to Australia. They desperately want to go. They can't. So they're going to put their money where their mouth is and make sure as many people can go as possible. And that is the attitude I think we need to take. Whether or you, you and I are in the position to go overseas or not, are we so filled with the reality of the risen Jesus, that we've got to make sure that people know. And I'm going to do everything that I can to back up those who can go for as long as it takes. Relative to the unbelieving world, we are a tiny group of people. But the adventure has only just begun. It's we who have met the risen Jesus. We have instructions. We have his power. And we are not alone. Let's pray.